Well, good morning. We're going to try some cool newfangled technology stuff this morning. So be warned. If something happens, it is most definitely my fault, not our fine folk back at the tech desk. Today, uh, as we continue looking at the words of Christ in John chapter 6, the famous bread of life discourse, I wanted to begin by looking uh, at a passage that perhaps we wouldn't initially think to turn to, but I think we will see is actually very appropriate to what we're looking at, and that is Daniel chapter 7. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. For those of you that uh, have learned that kids can memorize anything at any length if you sing it, that is a helpful tool. Daniel chapter 7. And I want to begin reading this morning in verse 9. If you would honor the reading of God's word, if you're able to, by standing, please do so. In this famous passage in Daniel 9, Daniel is given a vision of the ancient of days and then the presentation of one of the singularly most important figures in all of history, somebody that we will meet again in our passage this morning. Look with me at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed Would you pray with me? Father, even as we sang this morning about the worthiness of your Son, who alone in all the earth has the right to step forward, to take that scroll, that seal, that title deed of earth, and claim dominion over it. This is what he was foretold to do all the way back by the prophet Daniel. And we are excited this morning as we get to see him continuing to reveal himself to his people, not as the Messiah they expected, but as the one he was promised to be at such a a greater scope and scale than they had dared to imagine. 
And I pray this morning that we would also remember in the midst of our troubles, the headlines that fill our news, the little things that are on our hearts this morning, you would remember that we serve the Son of Man, that we were created to do so, and that from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue that you have gathered us from, we are gathering because we are excited about his dominion and his reign, knowing that it shall never be shaken nor end, and that in that place we will find our eternal rest. So towards that, may we press on today by your grace and in the power of your spirit. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Are you a good listener? Are you a good listener? Um, Sometimes. It's hard to be a good listener, isn't it? It's hard to really listen well, especially if you're talking to somebody that's maybe coming at something from a pretty different perspective than you are. Any of you who have known anybody else know what I'm talking about. But being a good listener is is key to having any kind of true, good relationship with somebody. In fact, if I asked you, who knows you best? Who knows you best? I can be pretty sure your answer is going to be somebody that you consider to be a good listener. Right? It's not going to be the person who's like, uh-huh, yeah, I know. Not that person. That's going to be the person who you feel has actually listened until they understood what you were trying to communicate heart to heart and soul to soul. And if I asked you, who misunderstands you the most? Who misunderstands you the most? The answer is probably somebody you do not consider to be a good listener. We, we can't come into any communication without dragging our experiences, um, our biases, our, um, our assumptions and expectations. That's just going to be part of who we are. But to be a good listener means learning to try to set those aside long enough to try to understand what the experience is, the expectations, the assumptions, the thoughts of the other person is. What point are they trying to make? And when it comes to Jesus, that principle applies as well. When we come to our Savior, there is even a greater need for us to be very careful to stop, set aside what we think he's supposed to be trying to say, what we think he's supposed to be trying to do, and say, help me understand I want to be a good listener when you speak because I want to understand who you really are. And this morning in our passage, I think we have a great illustration of what this is supposed to look like and what this is not supposed to look like. We're going to see at least, I think, four markers of somebody who is not a very good listener to Jesus and two characteristics of somebody who is. And our challenge for us this morning is uh, check the box next to the one you most resemble and see how we're doing there. And for you kids this morning that are here, I want you to listen closely this morning too because we are talking about Jesus and his words and understanding him, but I also want you to learn some of these principles to apply to a different relationship. Specifically, how well do you listen to your parents? Because that is the relationship, the way that you learn to listen to your parents 
is how you develop your ability and your skill to eventually listen to God. And for those of you that know Jesus and love Jesus, that is one of the best ways that you can practice being a good listener to Jesus is by being a good listener to the ones Jesus has given you to teach you about him. Jesus this morning in our text is going to be diving into the difficulty his message encounters when it's processed through, like I said, our human expectations and desires. And he's going to contrast that with what happens when we are able to listen with faith and with spiritual insight. And so if you want your outline in advance, it's going to be looking at what does it mean to listen to Jesus with ears of the flesh and what does it mean to listen to Jesus with ears of faith. The words of Jesus are not like some kind of a secret code. Right? When Jesus was speaking, it wasn't like, you know what, someday I'm going to send you the decoder key and then you'll be able to compare every fourth word and highlight every third letter and you'll be able to assemble it into the secret message of what I was really trying to tell you. No, they're, they're, they're just simple words. In fact, Jesus in particular... Ah, see, here's my first oops. Jesus in particular speaks with clear language that has been understood throughout history to be some of the most simple, down-to-earth teaching of any great teacher ever. And yet, it is still so easy to miss what he means by what he says, what he says because we come to it with these expectations of what we think he's supposed to be saying. And so I want us to begin by looking at how we can fall into this trap of hearing with only ears of flesh by looking at verses 59 to 61. So would you read those with me? Verse 59 says this in John chapter 6, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Ears of flesh, ears of flesh. That's what we're talking about. Listening, not as those who understand what Jesus is saying, but listening to Jesus, bringing all of our earthly, worldly expectations and assumptions. We, mo we begin by looking at where this took place. You can see it says there at the beginning, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And the these things that he's talking about is this whole bread of life discourse that he's been teaching them. This whole series of lessons as they've been moving along there on, in the city of Capernaum. All that beginning back at the feeding of the 5,000 and now carrying forward to what he just said about needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood because he is the source of true spiritual life. That's the, the graphic culmination of this lesson that Jesus has been teaching them. And he's been teaching them, as we can see, in the synagogue in Capernaum. We don't know exactly when he moved into that building, but at some point in this conversation, he's transitioned there. Uh, if you remember from our maps, we've been following Jesus. He began on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he traveled over to try to find himself a place to stay with his disciples privately, the crowds followed him around and met him there. And then, as you recall, Jesus then said, okay, we're going to the other side of the lake. His disciples headed over. Jesus then walked back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And then the crowds chased him back the other direction and met him there. And so we are in the city of Capernaum, right there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where this is all taking place. It's a cute little city. Uh, You can actually see quite a bit of it that's been uh, dug up and excavated through modern archaeology. We've got a number of really neat houses that have been preserved there. But right in the middle, the dominant structure is the synagogue itself. The synagogue, if you recall, was that synagogue built with the financial support of a Roman centurion who was a believer in God. And it was originally constructed of that dark black basalt stone that Capernaum architecture is known for. So what you see today here is a rebuilding of the synagogue that happened a couple hundred year, a few hundred years later uh, with the limestone that's more common. But it was built on top of the same foundation and basically to the same design and specs as the original synagogue. And you can go see that today. It's pretty cool. And for you kids here this morning, how fun would it be on a nice hot day like this to go to a church service that was several hours longer sitting on a nice little black stone bench? It would be kind of like going and sitting in an oven. Uh, So, you know, you can feel those nice cushy chairs and the little air conditioning that's blowing around you and be thankful for modern progress. But this is what it was like to go to church in the ancient world. You would come into this building, you'd be arranged, usually the men on one side, the women on the other side. There would be a chair where the rabbi, the teacher, would come and sit and then he would expound God's word. He would explain God's word and engage often in dialogue with the people, answering their questions about how to live it out. And Jesus has taken that role, sitting and explaining to the crowds these truths. Our text this morning, though, does not begin with the words of Jesus, but it begins with the reaction of his disciples to the difficult, profound words of Jesus that he just finished. And as I said earlier, there are four good lessons in here for us, I think, about what bad listening looks like, what listening with only ears of the flesh looks like, and not ears of faith. And here comes our first one. Our first lesson this morning, or our first example of how not to listen to Jesus, is to to see people here who follow what they don't understand. People following what they don't understand. If you look at verse 60, it begins simply this way. Therefore, many of his disciples, and I just want to stop right there. We know from reading the passage that the group being addressed here is in the process of turning away from Jesus. That's where this is all headed. But notice what that group is. This is not a group of Jesus' enemies. This is not even, quote, the Jews, as John often likes to identify the Jewish rulers and leaders those who are set against Christ from the very beginning and who are constantly critical of him and trying to trip him up. No, this is not that group. This is the disciples of Jesus who are reacting, his followers. Some of those who misunderstood Jesus the most here were those who actively followed him around as a disciple. Some of those who misunderstand Jesus the most today are in the same category. Some of the people I think that have the least knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do go to church every Sunday. And Mark, I'm a Christian on all of the surveys. This is a problem that Jesus had to face over and over, not only opposition from without, 
but opposition from within. And what's interesting is his enemies often picked up a lot faster on what he was actually saying than his followers. They often picked up a lot quicker on his claims to be God and his assumption of the messianic role. They picked up on that faster than often a lot of the people that were following him around. Have you ever had the experience where you thought, you know what? I think everybody in the world understands what I'm saying better than my children do. Anybody ever had that experience? Like, I speak to so-and-so, they immediately reply like a human being. I, I call out to my child, and I call out to my child, and I call out to my child, and I say, can you hear me? Not until the third time. Or perhaps your own spouse. How many of you have felt that barrier where you're like, I just don't feel like we're connecting. I feel like I'm trying to say the same thing over and over. We're not understanding each other. It's interesting how sometimes it seems like the greatest barriers in communication and the most misunderstanding happens with those that you are actually closest with. And Jesus can relate. Jesus can relate. There are many reasons... A person can become a foolish follower of Jesus that doesn't understand what he or she is actually following. It could be ignorance or the results of false teaching. There are people that have been raised in whole traditions of the church that have diverged from the true teaching of God's word. I think more commonly, we misunderstand Jesus, we misunderstand what he's saying because of our own pride and our desire to protect our sins from the close examination of Scripture. Well, Jesus certainly couldn't be talking about this part of my life. Sometimes it's just simple laziness. A lack of interested attention to the words of Jesus. I don't know. I just show up to church, and I like Jesus. I don't read books. I don't read the Bible. I don't really care to. But a big problem, one we're going to see that they have here in this passage, and one that affects every culture, is the problem of syncretism. The problem of syncretism, or what you might call a tossed salad religion. One part Bible, one part personal expectations, one part cultural norms. Tossed thoroughly, garnished with self-righteousness, seasoned to taste with moral platitudes. That happens everywhere and in every culture where we say, okay, yeah, I see what Jesus is talking about. That sounds kind of like this thing, so it must be basically the same. So let's just take this thing and that thing and kind of mix them together. And we look at other cultures where they have had maybe more explicit pagan worship practices and we say, look, see, that's obviously ridiculous that you would see the shaman in his headdress there with the Bible trying to teach half about the cultural ancestors and demons and half about Jesus Christ. What's going on? That's ridiculous. But do we not do the exact same thing? We just have different cultural idols we mix with Jesus. Jesus somehow works as a social revolutionary in line with whatever our culture is excited about this week. Jesus is somehow part of my materialistic worship of stuff because he wants me happy, healthy, wealthy, etc., Jesus is part of the self-help movement, the positive thinking movement. If I, if I do these things, he's going to be my lucky charm to make sure I get that job position, to make sure I achieve my dreams. 
We're just as bad as anybody at stirring into the words of Jesus our hopes, our desires, our cultural expectations, our cultural norms. And we're just as likely to completely miss what Jesus is actually saying. And we need to be careful about that. The problem with Jesus' disciples is more than just some lack of understanding. It's an unwillingness to wrestle with words that cut across the grain of their expectations. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is going to lead them to a pretty scary place. And we're going to see more about that next week. When presented with the very truths that can clear up their misunderstandings of Jesus, we're going to see the disciples instead choose to reject the message of Jesus. And that's what we see as our next lesson this morning, that they reject what they should instead be investigating. They're following what they clearly do not understand, even though they're his disciples, and they reject what they should be investigating. Look with me at the rest of verse 60. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? These disciples of Jesus are obviously taken aback. They don't like what they've heard. When it says this is a difficult statement, that word difficult there means something physically rough and scratchy, something that's uncomfortable to touch. It can also be translated as harsh. Jesus' words were hitting their ears like sandpaper. Kids, don't try that at home. It hurts. Like sandpaper, and they were unwilling to even continue listening to such words who can listen to this? Who can stand here and even hear that? That word for listen or for hear in your translation is the word we get our English word acoustics from. It means just the natural function of the human hearing. They're not just saying, who can understand the deep truth involved here? They're saying, who is willing to stand here and let those words keep coming into their ears? That's what they're saying. Why are these words so hard for them to hear? I think D.A. Carson does a good job in his commentary on this verse in summarizing at least four reasons that Jesus has sandpapered the ears of his audience here. First of all, because they wanted food, a political Messiah, and cool miracles, they do not want the spiritual realities that Jesus is offering them. Second, they didn't like Jesus claiming to be in charge of their spiritual destinies, that he was going to be the source of all these things. They thought Jesus was getting too big for his britches. Remember, who's this guy? We know his dad. We know his mom. We know where they live. Who does he think he is? Specifically, number three, they really didn't like Jesus claiming to be better than Moses and sent from heaven. That was a bridge too far. And most recently, they were frankly disgusted by the language of Jesus' body being bred to eat and his blood being true drink. Even for a, a modern culture like ours, that's kind of an ew verse. But add on top of that a culture in which all of those ideas were massive cultural taboos as well, and it was just too much. They just could not handle it. We can sympathize with them to some extent because they are, these are truly hard words. The problem isn't that Jesus tossed them a softball and they thought it was a fast pitch. That's not the problem here. These are hard words. 
But we need to ask ourselves, what should they have done when confronted with hard words? And what should we do when we are confronted with hard words? Well, what do you do when someone you love and you trust tells you something that's hard to understand or hurts your ears? Do you throw up your hands in the air and walk away? No, you lean in. You investigate. You clarify the confusion. You try to understand. That's what they should have done. Whatever wrong thinking they were employing at this point, we have elevated that to an art form in our culture, haven't we? We even got a name for it. Cancel culture. Have you noticed how many topics you're not allowed to discuss anymore? Creation, the environment, abortion, politics, human sexuality, immigration, the million connected issues that might impinge upon any of those topics, and on and on. It's amazing how many times I see one of these subjects appear in some kind of, a, of an interaction or discourse. And the immediate response is, since we all know what the right answer is, that all sane people must believe, whoever raised this topic can simply be ignored, silenced, or canceled. They do not have the right to speak. That's another way of saying, these words are not happy words. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? It's not the impulse of a healthy culture, by the way. And for you youth out there, fight the tendency to mistake zeal for what is right with an obstinate refusal to interact with those who disagree. But this can happen in our church as well. When a verse comes up that doesn't fit with our notion of how we think God works, we just turn away and wave our hands at it. I don't know. I don't have a summary degree. I don't know what that verse means, even though it's like really clear and simple. So I'm just going to ignore it because I think this is how Jesus should work, how God should work. I know it doesn't mean that. Jesus would never say such a thing. I wouldn't let him. When we are convicted about our own personal idols, we have some excuse for blaming the messenger instead of our sin. I'm willing to tolerate just about anything in a sermon or a Bible study or a book, etc., as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. And you can look at the evangelical world today and see the results of that. I've mentioned before that at least one church historian commented that the, the thing in history that changed the church more than anything else in all of history was the invention of the automobile. Because for the first time, if you didn't like the church in town, you could go to the next town. And instead of people having to figure it out at their church, they could figure out what church they would rather be at. And we have an entire church culture that has been bent towards making people comfortable enough to not go to the next church down the road. Even scripture warns about the temptation for the disciples of Jesus to keep themselves from having to hear the hard words of Jesus. Think about the modern American church culture as you hear these familiar words from 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You could also put in the margin there, 
Tough words. Tough words. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. happening out there but we need to be honest with ourselves and realize that too often happens in here as well we know those topics those sermons and we're like yeah that's my soapbox too and then the other weeks where we're like i think i want out of here i don't we shouldn't be talking about that that needs, to be, that needs to be balanced. We need to balance that truth out. That's one of my favorites. That's a balanced truth out. Chocolate chip mint ice cream is good. You don't need to balance that statement out. Well, this, this is also good. No, it just stands by itself. It's self-evident. Yeah, you can argue with me about that later. What are the things that Jesus talks about that sound harsh to us? As I was thinking this week about those things that tend, I think, grate the most against our sensibilities, it's amazing how many times I think they boil down to one of the four S's, sin, sex, sacrifice, or submission. I think those are the categories that we tend to get bent out of shape about the most. We don't like it when Jesus talks about our sin in terms as unflattering as our sin is. We don't like it when Jesus tells us that we must conform our human sexuality to his standards and his expectations, especially you youth right now, please hear this. Because this is the number one reason that people, quote unquote, walk away from church when they hit college, is to explore their sexual freedom. And that's why as soon as they get married and have the first kid, most come back to the church as their first act of repentance. Sacrifice. We like being comfortable in America. More quantitative easing, please. Less hard work. We don't want Jesus to say, hey, what if I want you to sell all your possessions and go to the poor? Or submission. I'm not just talking about complementarianism. I'm talking about the submission every single one of us must make before Jesus as our master, as our king, We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. And so when scripture speaks about these precious truths, we say, man, my ears are raw. Who can listen to this? These are the things that bother people in the time of the New Testament. They're the same things that bother disciples and unbelievers alike today because human nature doesn't change. Third this morning, people grumble when they should ask They grumble when they should ask. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this. Jesus re-enters the frame here. That's good news. He's going to start to straighten things out. But look at what is going on that Jesus is reacting to here. The disciples who thought Jesus' words were harsh didn't just keep that objection to themselves. No, it was the topic that they were grumbling and murmuring about with one another as they shared their frustration with each other. Now I know... None of our teens would ever do this, but it could be a temptation for some out there. 
to take their frustration with certain words from perhaps a parent, for example, and be messaging their friends three seconds later about all the grievous injustices they have suffered in their home. Or you younger kids, you would never be told to clean your room and then as soon as the door closed, start stomping around your room in a huff, muttering, Mom is making me, I want to go play. We don't have to like grow into being a good grumbler. It's just like built in. You're born, you're like language skills, level zero, grumbling, level 10, right out of the gate. We so often prefer to respond to any authority we don't like with grumbling. And there is no question that what Jesus told his disciples was shocking, but their response should have been to ask questions, humbly, to try to understand, to lean into the words of Jesus. Instead, they lean away and turn to each other and just start muttering, can you believe this? This, And these are his disciples. Here's a good general rule. Grumbling is a certain sign you're not handling something the right way. I'm sure that applies to all of you. Sometimes these passages, your pastors crawl into the pulpit black and blue, just so you know. Do you find yourself grumbling about God? Grumbling to God? Look, he knows you're grumbling, just like Jesus knew the disciples were grumbling, and he knows what you're grumbling about. So you might as well just fess up. Come to him. Be honest with what you're struggling with and ask him to help you make sense of whatever it is that you're dealing with. Struggle is involved in approaching the truth. It always will be. And because struggle will always be involved in approaching the truth, the truth will always be at some level always scandalous. And that's our fourth observation this morning. People scandalize what they should embrace. With ears of flesh, what you hear from the harsh words of truth will be a scandal. Look at the end of verse 61. Jesus said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Jesus addresses the grumblers and asks a pointed question. The word for stumble here is the word we get our English word scandal from. To scandalize. It means to cause something to be brought to a downfall or to shock something. It's the wayward stream that erodes the dam until it collapses. It's that bolt of lightning that comes out of nowhere and just blows everything up so it doesn't work anymore. And as we already discussed, the Jewish followers of Jesus had experienced about as much scandal from Jesus as they could handle. He was not what they thought he should be, and his words were the sort of thing that made people simply say, you can't say that. No, you can't say that. Are you scandalized by the gospel? Are you scandalized by the gospel? Does it bother you that Jesus claims to be the only way to heaven? Do you find doubts and questions creeping in slowly over time and welling up inside? Do you, com- do you cringe at the commands to live a life of self-sacrifice, of holiness? The words of Jesus are, remember, the gospel. They are good news. Turns out that good news doesn't always feel good when it comes. 
But we must recognize the words of Jesus as our only lifeline and embrace them as hard as they are to hear as our only hope. We must wrestle with our souls, seek answers to our questions, especially you who are young. Do that early before they fester. And don't give up until the words that burned your tongue like a hot jalapeno have finally turned into something that soothes your throat like a perfectly warm cup of tea with lots of honey in it. Because we can't afford to have a scandal in our own hearts when we are going to be called upon to be a scandal in front of the watching world. Increasingly in our own culture, it is scandalous to simply say, yeah, I believe this book. It's no longer the athlete who kneels for a cause that gets the headlines. It's the one who stands up because he believes only God should be knelt down to. It's no longer the case that God's word is afforded respect, but we're now seeing stacks of Bibles being burned as a protest. Nominees for the Supreme Court have their biblical faith flagged as a threat to their judicial aptitude instead of being a sign of moral clarity. Christian, young Christian, Are you ready for your faith to be ridiculous, scandalous, socially unacceptable in your lifetime, in America, with your neighbors? The gospel has always been scandalous and it always will be so. Paul taught about this very reality. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for what? They like signs. And Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To those who are seeking a sign, it's a stumbling block. To those who want wisdom, who want to figure everything out, it's stupid. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To our youth and our children, you will likely bear the brunt of the coming cultural ejection of tolerance towards the Christian faith. Now is the time to work through the tough questions, to grow in your fellowship and relationship with God in his word and in prayer so that you will be strong. Because soon it will be your time to stand as a witness to truth to a community and a country that will no longer accept you. So how do we anchor our souls when dealing with words that are hard to accept and intolerable to those around us? We have to use ears of faith and hear what Jesus is actually saying and we will find great hope in this. Briefly this morning, here are two key ways in which we can respond to the words of Jesus as we ought to. Look with me at verses 62 to 63. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you our spirit and life. Jesus is now contrasting what the disciples were reacting to with what they should have been reacting to. Those who have actually been listening with ears of faith 
will realize the true value of what is right there in front of them, hard or not. And they'll do so in at least two ways. First, they will understand what the real work of the Messiah is. What the real work of the Messiah is. They will value the Messiah's true work. Jesus, notice here, he's pivoting. He's saying, hey, are you scandalized by what I just said about myself? Well, what then if you actually saw what I'm going to do next? What then if you saw the Son of Man ascending to heaven? Then how would you respond? And by using that name Son of Man, Jesus is keying in on something pretty profound. We already talked about Daniel 7. You recall in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one who goes up to Yahweh. And what does he do there? He receives dominion over everything and he receives the right to rule over everyone. Jesus is saying, you have such a small view of what I am trying to do here. Such a small view of what I'm trying to do here. And if you were to trace the use of the Son of Man through the Gospel of John, you will notice a really clear pattern. It is the Son of Man who descended from heaven and will ascend to heaven. It is the Son of Man who judges the earth. It is the Son of Man who gives eternal life from the Father. And the only other common use of the term Son of Man is it is the Son of Man who will be lifted up on the cross for the world. Jesus is saying, you don't understand what I'm here to do. But you should. I'm the son of man and I'm preparing to rule everything. And you still want free food and a break from the Romans. This is pretty cool. Those who have ears of faith are not fixated on what our culture wants right now. They're not fixated on what they want right now. They are overwhelmed with what Jesus Christ is accomplishing with the, the horizon of eternity in view and everyone and everything being summed up in Him as the Son of Man. And that just takes everything that we get hung up on and dumps it in the petty bin. That reframes what you're dealing with in your your broken relationships and in your difficult job situations and your frustration with this COVID thing that won't ever die. Jesus is going to the Father and will receive from Him dominion and all will be called to worship and serve Him from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That plan's still on track. But we can't value the Messiah's work if we don't value the Messiah's words. And notice how Jesus pulls them back in on this point. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit 
and our life. The worldly disciples wanted a worldly Messiah. They wanted worldly benefits to satisfy worldly desires. They had ears of flesh and wanted a salvation for the flesh. And Jesus reminds us that life doesn't come from the physical realm. This is just axiomatically true. Matter did not beget life. Isn't it interesting that one of the most pervasive lies in the entire world is trying to reverse that? Matter did not beget life. It is not insignificant. It is the Spirit who has always given life. He has been the source of all life, physical life and spiritual life. And how has our God chosen to bring about life? He speaks it into being through his words and through his word. Jesus claiming that power for himself now tells those around him, my words are spirit and our life. Don't you know it is the Spirit who gives life? That's what I'm speaking to you right now. The words of power that bring about life. If they will not wrestle with his words, then they will have missed their, their Messiah. And that is why Paul can say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, even as I come into Rome, the most intellectually sophisticated place on earth, with a message they are going to think is bonkers. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is why he would also write to Timothy, hey, don't worry about those hard passages people don't want to listen to, because all Scripture is God-breathed, literally inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's the fruit of God's words, our Savior himself. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone even if it's from a free lunch that he serves to 20,000 people, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We must value the words of Jesus to value the work of Jesus, to understand and value Jesus himself. Because here is the harsh reality as we get ready to partake of the Lord's table this morning, you didn't come into a cosmic accident. You are a creation of a holy God made in his image. You won't get into heaven if you do more good than bad. You will go to hell if you ever break God's law at any point because God does not think you are a good person. He knows every thought every word and every action that pricks your conscience and breaks his moral standard of perfection. There are not many ways to heaven. There is only one, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't point the way to heaven as a moral example of being nice. Jesus endured the full wrath of God we would have endured over an eternity in hell when he died on the cross as the substitute 
for sinners. And you and I don't contribute a single thing of value to earn such an unspeakably precious gift of grace. We receive it as beggars with all humility. We don't gain the system by praying a prayer to achieve a get-out-of-hell-free card. When we come to Jesus, we come as subjects to a king, as slaves to a master, and as brothers and sisters of Christ adopted into the family of our Heavenly Father. This is the message of the gospel, and our world is going to say, who can listen to it? Some of the disciples of Jesus are going to say, who can listen to it? But today I ask you, how do you respond? Do you believe it? As the music team comes, perhaps this very morning, you are wrestling with the hard words of Jesus. I would call on you to respond to him in faith this morning. Don't let your ears be closed by the harshness, that ringing that the gospel inevitably always has at first. Consider the claims of Jesus. Consider that his offer is the only one that makes sense of this broken world of the realities you know to be true in your own heart and you see around you. Receive his words this morning as spirit and as life. And if today you make that decision, then would you do two things? First, please join in as we partake of communion in just a moment. Join with the family of God into which you have entered by faith in the words of Jesus and in the person and work of Jesus. And second, I know we have our protocol, but as soon as you get outside, you tell somebody so that they can celebrate with you and encourage you in your walk with Christ. If you gather this morning as one who has already placed your faith in Christ, then my charge to us is this. Let us be better listeners to Christ. You can never get enough of what he has told us in his word. And let us never tire of celebrating the unfolding of those scandalous events that occurred on a cross in Israel now almost 2,000 years ago. Let's reflect on that as we listen to this song and participate in it, and then we'll take communion together in just a moment.